Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I'm your host, Jeremy Jusek, and today joining us is Ray McNeese. He is the author of 11 books of poems and monologues and two solo theater works. He has a strong interest in cultivating a new generation of writers, and has worked for the Ohio Arts Council, the Center for the Arts Inspired Learning, and teaches at John Carroll University. He started his own educational company called Page to Page Productions in 1994 and was recently certified into Young Audience's National Teaching Artist Roster, a national recognition extended to 20 teaching artists. He is currently the Cleveland Heights Poet Laureate and a three-time haiku deathmatch champion. Ray, welcome to Poetry Spotlight. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be out there flying around on the airwaves. Yeah, you've <laughs> got to now with COVID. <laughs> Disembodied poetics. <laughs> That's right. So uh, you're currently serving as the Cleveland Heights 10th Poet Laureate, and you were established last year, like right when COVID started in April. And you had commented when you when you were appointed back then, you had said that you needed to find creative solutions to deal with the no contact situation. And you mentioned conducting workshops on Zoom. And I'm wondering now a year later, <laughs> that gone? <laughs> um, well, we've had it, you know, and one of the primary projects of being the poet laureate is doing these ekphrastasy um, readings that coincide with art openings. So I've been able to do those um, because we have limited uh, social contact. I'm able to go in and meet with a handful of the poets that I bring in on the projects and we can, you know, write based on the artwork. We go back, we bring it back, and then record it. Whereas formerly we would have a, a reading, which was great because I I love emceeing those events. But <laughs> so now people just go back. They um, we each record individually, so there's very little contact. So it's not exactly how I would like it to be, but at least we're keeping the poetry going. So that's good. That's that's. In fact, I was over there today um, wrangling some poets, which is bit like herding cats you know so we don't <laughs> we don't really um we don't have the opportunity however that was just informed today that uh in the summer we're going to move the uh, ekphrastasy readings out to the courtyard so that we can do them and by then i'm thinking we'll be able to have you know limited audience people masked up still of course but you know people won't be as is hesitant to come out because I think that's the other problem is that you know people don't want to go out right yeah so and I think have, I know a lot of people that have already gotten vaccinated and I'm assuming by then that at least the people who are already vaccinated will feel safe to go out you know I don't want them putting a microchip in me <laughs> <laughs> the government's watching it's between those and those yeah whenever people say that I'm like Hey, you see that thing in your hand, the phone? They've been tracking you for years. Yeah. 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 They it don't need to, they don't need to tag you, dude. You voluntarily do it. <laughs> you turn your location on so you can find the nearest Wendy's. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. So you've been teaching for a while. I mean, I, I was blown away by how involved with education you've been and poetry education uh, because this, the, the, the poet laureate position is meant to spread awareness, but you're the perfect candidate for this. So where does that interest come from and how did you get started? Oh, wow. 
Well, um, you know, I, I learned poetry at my grandma Zelma's side. She would recite poems, not read them, but recite poems to me as a young boy when I would spend my summers down there in Marietta, Marietta area. And um, I, I still have some of the poems memorized from that time. Um, she would, she could recite the whole book of Ruth in the Bible. Oh, um, the story is, is that she was, you know, my great granddaddy was a moonshiner up in Sistersville in West Virginia, and he liked his product too much and he ended up uh, uh, expired his spirits. Uh, so they sent him over to the Marietta workhouse, her and her brother, her younger brother, and she was semi-literate. So she learned how to read in the, um, wasn't even called an orphanage in those days, it was called the Marietta workhouse. And she learned to learn, learn to read there from the Bible. And so, you know, it was always something that she came back to. It was her great strength and touchstone in her life. And so I learned a lot of poetry, mostly uh, biblical poetry, and old uh, King James version, which is, of course, the Renaissance version of the King of the Bible, which is full of poet poetry because all the poets that were working on it, you know. Yeah. So it was a great it, it was a great to learn that stuff. And then on the other hand, I had uh, my uncle Art, who was uh, was a navigator on B-17s, got shot down twice over Germany, et cetera, et cetera. But he he had lost his leg in the war and he would sit on his back porch and, and tell tall tales, Appalachian storyteller. So I, I kind of got the sacred and the profane. Because <laughs> uh, it was great sitting back on him. He'd be dipping snuff and drinking shine and, you know, telling tales. And, and grandma, on the other hand, was reciting, you know, the Psalms to me. So it, it was a, it was a great mix. And so I, I grew up with that. And then my parents were um, both amateur theatrical. So they were singing show tunes to each other around the house all through my childhood. Oh, um, and and the, the love of reading that was instilled in both sides of my family. As I said, my grandmother was illiterate and, you know, one thing she was very strict about was reading, you know, I mean, she wanted us to read and become educated. Um, they were just poor Appalachian folk, you know, so that came from my dad's side. Then my, my mother's side were Slovenian immigrants and they also had this great literacy in their culture. I mean, there were at one time in Cleveland, Ohio, there were 17 Slovenian language newspapers, you know, Jeez. so there's a, there was this tradition. And of course their, their, their national anthem is written by a poet, French Pizarin. It's actually a drinking song, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Kind of nice. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, long story short, I, I had it. I was lucky that I was part of an extant oral tradition in some ways from my Appalachian side and also the great love of uh, learning and literacy that the immigrants on the other side. And I, I, probably one of the reasons my parents fell in love is they're both bookish people. And we always had books, always had books mom always read to us. And my dad loved uh, songs and poems. So uh, from his mom, probably as I did. So that that's, that's how it came to be. Yeah. And when did you decide like, hey, it's really important that I instill this love you know, for future generations, because you, you you do tons of poetry workshops and direct teaching, you know. Well, there are, I thought so too, that's a double-edged kind of sword there. I <laughs> mean, yeah, I, I, of course, I wanted to, as was handed down to me, I wanted to keep that tradition going. There's no doubt about that. And I think the more literate we are as a people, 
the less likely we are to fa fall for lies, you know, misinformation and disinformation. And I would say, if you can read, you can read between the lines. And that's one of the mottos that I use for a lot of the workshops that I do, because to me, it's, um, it's a social activist kind of stance to, I mean, the, the more people who are literate in any culture, you know, the better, the, the better government they will have because they'll be able to tell what's going on. Absolutely. And so that was that was part of the impetus for it. But, you know, to be honest with you, some of it was um, that I wasn't going to be the first poetry millionaire. I had a lot of success early on. Um, but one way that I found and I have a history of teaching in my family. I have five sisters and three of them were teachers. So it was in the family. But, you know, it was a way to make money, Frank, quite frankly, it was a way to um, and I first started doing it in Boston, where I was living it. I was a social worker, and I, I had a success with a one-person show I put together called Dis Voices from a Shelter, which was a series of monologues. I worked as a um, counselor in, in a night sh overnight shelter. It was a wet shelter, so uh, we let anybody come in. So I, you know, it was it was a way of kind of telling their stories at a time when this was the beginning of the Reagan Reagan era and. Um, you know, people were living formerly in single room occupancy hotels, the big real estate scam started happening and you had thousands of people on the streets in, in Boston and many of them vets, which is always the sad thing. And he was one of the central, that character was one of the central characters in the show that I did. So I had some success. Um, I toured around with that, but I, you know, like I said, I realized I wasn't going to become a poetry millionaire uh, just on the shows as you, a showbiz guy like yourself would know that there's not a good deal of money in show business uh, unless you get to the very top of it. So yeah, teaching, place. teaching was a way to make money. But of course, what happens is, is, you know, I, I fell in love with it too. I mean, I wouldn't still be teaching after all these years. And I, and I teach all levels. I teach kindergarten to senior citizens, you know, it's, it's, I've done memoir writing classes. My name bailiwick, bailiwick is poetry, but I do. Um, I've done nonfiction classes and play playwriting classes and monologue classes, et cetera, et cetera. All the different genres, you know, anything that has to do with um, words on stage, which is page to stage is the company name. But anything okay. that you know you can take take stuff and put it on stages was what I teach. I mean, I teach what I do. So I'm a storyteller. Uh, I do Johnny Appleseed. I'm, I'm Ohio's Johnny Appleseed. I've been <laughs> doing Johnny for, he's been paying my rent for low these many years now. Hold on, I have questions about this. So are you, do you go and do you plant apple trees across Ohio or do you get Because oh. <laughs> that would be awesome. I, don't, I just portray Johnny. <laughs> I don't do any of the heavy lifting. I just show up with a tin pot on my head and I, I do my song and dance and no, but you know, it's an opportunity for, again, it's an opportunity to strive um, uh, to uh, kind of accentuate literacy. He was extremely literate character, um, mm -hmm. carried a lot of tracks. He was a Swedenborgian, which is the same spiritual path that uh, Blake followed. <laughs> um, so he had that in common with him. And, you know, there's a whole, you know, the Disney version of Johnny Appleseed is nothing who the man was, I mean, uh, a lot of Disney stories, the originals. Yeah. Are. Right. So, but it's also, it's more, he was, um, he was considered a shaman by Native Americans because he was a healer. He, he was, um, he's like a medicine man. It was a great, it's, he's actually a much more complex and uh, it's a great character to do, but 
again, here again, my grandma told me Johnny Appleseed stories. Grandma Zelma down there in Appalachia, which is he Johnny's sister lived down there, and he that's where he would go down and visit. And you know, he came up the Mus uh, Muskingum River uh, to um, what is it, Black Hand Gorge? You know, I mean, so these places you might know some of these Ohio. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is I I finished fourth in the state on the Ohio history exam in uh, high school contest they had in in, um, <laughs> in high school. I was a weird dude. Man. I used to sit in the basement oh, awesome. reading like <laughs> read encyclopedias. I, I just had it in me to read. I still enjoy the hell out of just physically reading. So I I want to pass that on to other people. Well, and once you do, once you give them the love of language, then it's then you don't have to do any of the work. They just take it all on their own. Absolutely. And poetry is one of the best ways to teach the love of language. Yeah, it's so musical. I, I found that with the kids too. When I show them good poetry, they really get into it and they remember it too because it, it gets stuck in your head. You know. Oh, I use it. I you know I've been going to some senior centers and uh, doing. Uh, my friend Gary Glazner, great poet, does something called the Alzheimer's Project. It's po using poetry, mm -hmm. so that's what I do. I go in and it's amazing, like how many of these people remember poems from their childhood and songs from their childhood. So, you know, I'll try to like, uh, I'll sing Sunny Side of the Street. I bring, I play guitar too, and I'll, I'll sing Sunny Side of the Street and, and uh, you know, and it, their ears will pork up right away. And I say, well, okay, tell me the first time you heard that song. And so it starts a story and, and it's like, oh yeah, well, Edith, you know, my wife. And, and I'm like, okay, so then I'll change, I'll put Edith in the song, you know, I'll put her in the song. No, and, and what happens is all these memories start uh, that have accrued around that song and around that person start to ripple outward and people start remembering more and more and you're basically you're you're, you're kind of sending that uh, through the neurons like a ripple through the neurons you know and yeah. it's 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 wonderful to see and you see how kids learn it early on I, I have a question for you about that because do you think that talking over zoom gets I'm interested in the neural response. Do you think it gets a lesser neural response being on it? You know, yeah, yes. I, uh, yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. I think definitely because it's like listening to a CD versus vinyl versus live. That's true. Right? I, I mean, everything is compressed and Zoom compresses tone. Uh, it's all about information. And that's that's the big lie of the time we're living in that it's that information is more important than meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do. I do a poetry workshop in Parma, and we've kept it going on Zoom. And there, we've gotten new people in the class. But there are some, you know, there are some other people that were going every month that that emailed me and they said, you know, Jeremy, I feel so bad, but I can't do this online. I just can't. And let me know, you know, when it's in person again, I will happily come back. But they're just. Oh, we, we absolutely have to get to a place where we're sitting together in company again, because the division and the separation that's going on is, is frightening in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. But I, you know, you as a theater guy know, like, I mean, that's where it all started. You got done eating, you were sitting around the fire and guy over here says, I got one for you. <laughs> or, 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 you know, lady over here says, well, you know, the story about grandma moon boom you know yeah. and and we don't have that anymore and if we lose that you know it's it's a matrix like kind of situation where you're just plugged in and and really what is that kind of existence is that
you know. I've noticed talking to my friends that we talk about television more because we're all watching more television. You know what I mean? Like it's even shifted our conversations when we do hang out because we're just bored and we we're not doing the things. Oh yeah. No, it's a great, you know, but it's, I, I, I think that we as a species will grow out of this whole infatuation and dependence on screens. I hope so. Because I think our, our doom is eminent, if not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in the sense that, you know, bookstore sales are up. You know, the, the e-reader was not the death of the book industry, which is positive. Right. I think that there are visceral aspects to our relationship with writing that will never go away just because people know that it's, it feels better to hold a book than to scroll a cold phone, you know. I've, yeah, I, and I think there'll be a lot less deceit, you know, and malfeasance. Um, you know, like I go back to it, you know, Jefferson said you needed an enlightened, enlightened electorate, you know. You, you, you know, and this said by a, a bunch of white, rich guys, rich white guys. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, that's the other thing is people got to get, get over that and say, yeah, you know, it's time to move on from the rich white guys, <laughs> you know, and I am a white guy, you know, right. but it's like any, any fool can see that they, they, they've led us down the road to ruin, you know. Yeah, so it's a, it's a uh, you know, maybe we, we should have heeded the, the the native peoples of this of this land, you know, instead of giving them smallpox infected blankets. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so I have a question about because you, you touched on philosophy and your philosophy is I mean, you've pulled in from a myriad of different sources and you went. I mean, you've traveled across Russia and Asia and you really got into Eastern philosophy. So I'm curious to what extent and how it, how did it shape your writing and your outlook as a person? Yeah. Um, you know, great. That's that, you know, I was, my father died when I was very young. Um, I was 10 years old and then I had, uh, an incident happen after that, that was kind of a traumatic incident. Um, so I was, uh, casting about for, um, a spiritual path and I didn't, find although i am very nostalgic and and some you know they always say you can take the catholic out of the church but you can't take the church out of the catholic so you know i mean i was baptized catholic and i grew up in a catholic household and i grew up very fond of the the catholic people in my family were ursuline nuns and franciscans so they were kind of the left-wing hippie part of the catholic church so it, they were jesus is just all right guitar mask kind of places you know so I'm, I'm cool i'm down jesus in that way but the the whole um you know the priest saying your dad's in a better place and god took him because he need you know i was like ah, ah we got six kids here we're we're broke you know this is you know this is not just the something's not right with the picture here, you know? And so I, I, um, I'm, I spent a lot of time in nature as a, as my, because of my father, he was a Appalachian guy and we spent a lot of time hiking together and fishing and he taught me how to fish and hunt and, you know, skin stuff and, you know, all that good stuff that, so, and he knew a lot because like I said, my grandma was a kind of a root woman and, you know, and he grew up in the country. So he knew how to do a lot of things like that. So, um, you know, I, I, I was in the flow of nature at a very early age. 
And after my father died, I went to nature for, for solace and for, because I felt the most connected to life when I was um, in the woods and I was grieving severely, you know? So one day I was, I, I was, I, I had a really good friend, Lynn Robinson around this place called the world of books. He was, I was, I worked for him in the summers as a tree trimmer and he was a Harbor summa cum laude and he, he turned his house into basically a bookstore and he knew where every book was. Anyways, he knew I was casting about and um, he recommended uh, Lao Tzu, you know, the Tao Te Ching. And uh, so I took a paperback copy with me when I, and, and Walden also Thoreau, you know. So I'm, you know, 16 years, 17 years old. I'm, I'm down in the valley, Willoughby Valley and uh, down there with the hemlocks and the birch and, and, the, and the, the rainbow darters and the chubs, you know, <laughs> and the grass pickerel, there used to be no more. I haven't seen one in such a long time. That makes me sad. But I, you know, anyways, I had a moment where I'm, I was, you know, in the Bible, it says the water wears the stone and the stone wears away. And, 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 the, and the Tao basically said the same thing. And when those two were kind of superimposed uh, in my imagination, I, I had this aha moment where like, wow, this is, you know, the Eastern idea of, of time and of mortality. And it just, it, it really resonated with me and my experiences in nature. So I always try to come from that spot. But like I said, you're, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a Western Christian, you know, cultural milieu. And so I'm imbued with those as is everyone in our society. Um, so it's, it's the constant tension between that. And there's, like I said, there's a lot of aspects um, of Catholicism. Um, there's been, Dante is one of my favorite writers, you know, probably my, one of my favorite poets. And, you know, you don't have, uh, Dante without the Catholic Church, right? His poetry comes right out of that tradition and, and all the good and bad of it, you know? So, uh, and then I had that, you know, the Appalachian, my grandma was a Methodist, you know, and uh, she she just had that John Wesley psalm, song, Bible verse, you know, that energy. And, and, she, and, and the Wesleyan Methodists are not hellfire brimstones. It's not all about sin shit you did bad and redemption you know yeah. it's really more cotton ball lamb jesus on sunday school you know? yeah. and that was that again was a big difference why at 17 years old i thought yeah do this not i'm guilty of this that and the other and if i don't follow the straight and narrow i'm doomed to one of dante's circles right know? And, and I think unless you really lack self-awareness and probably should be analyzing your actions because they're routinely harming other people around you. Oh, it, yeah. I, Not that, you know, and, and you know, St. Francis was, uh, Kazantzakis, one of my favorite novelists, wrote a great book, St. Francis. But yeah, St. Francis was kind of a Zen Buddhist, you know, and, and he, you know, Buddha said every, every, the tool for every job is compassion. The handle of every tool for every job is compassion and try to do that and it's not easy when you got three 300 third graders <laughs> running amok in a cafe gymnasium you know? oh man <laughs> and your sound system is the sound system they wheel out is some kind of like disco machine from <laughs> the 70s and you're like oh, no 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 this isn't gonna work yeah. So, you know, my consequently, my projection and my vocal cords are very strong. 
from years of, of being able to uh, project. And I, and I tell people, look, you know, this is, I do workshops on performance and voice, even for, I do um, performance technique for uh, readers because a lot of people do readings and their readings are, are awful. Their poetry might be good, but they're, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're hard pressed to follow along because it just, you know, it's the equivalent of watching paint dry. You know? It can be, I, I'm very grateful for having a theater background because it, it does make reading a lot easier. It makes enunciating things and giving it passion a lot easier. I, I liked watching your video, Love Song for Cleveland, because that's on YouTube. And the you, you, sent, you sent it to me and I like how you take a, a large moment, like more than a beat to let the audience digest and you walk away and then you come back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and well, you, made joke, you made a joke about throwing snowballs at the Hessler Foot Fair, and yeah. I think you could tell that was kind of like semi-improv. You knew. Oh yeah, I know definitely. Yeah. It, it, once you get the script down, and you know you, you can improv. Of course, you know that. I mean, in fact, that that's where the real magic happens. You have to almost when you're doing a show, you have to have that approach. You have to make it fresh every time and new. Otherwise, you're just you're up there and you're just saying the lines and it's not connecting you to the audience. And I was very fortunate that I, I'm, I'm very much of an empath and I, I have really thin skin. I've, I've learned a lot of ways to cope with that, you know, by being kind of seeming, some people, oh, he's kind of distant, you know? I mean, on the other hand, I'm very gregarious sometimes when I'm around people, but of course that's an act. I mean, <laughs> not, and, but acts are true too. It's not a fake act. It's a real act, you know, yeah, it comes that is me up. too. But anyways, the point is, is that I've always been able to feel things. And when you can feel the, to me, the poetry is the synergy between the, the, the poem that you're presenting um, and the audience. And you create this third thing, which is the whole moment of it. And, and of course that's where Zen comes in again, you know, it's, it's really always about the moment resonating outwards and there you cannot let you can't be dragged to the past by regret or, or anxious worryingly about the future you know you, you have the best art and the best performance and the best the peak experiences in sports and whenever you see that and I've been and, and in writing when you're creating too you know Jung says go back to where you were when you were a child and you didn't you, the mom called you in for dinner because it was getting dark you know it's i'm paraphrasing right. <laughs> young there <laughs> but he said something along those lines and that's that's exactly the the space you want to be in um maslock the behavior the psychologist called it peak experience you know yeah but that that is those, those and so being in that what you're seeing in that is you're seeing me that's a great example of me becoming i'm not you know you got to get the ego out of the way and, and you're just then the oracle you're just the the, the conduit as Mozart said, you know, I mean, you're, you're just letting the spirit flow through you and it's, and, and you have to get the ego out of the way because if you're self-conscious about it, it, it rings true, you know, rings false to the audience, Absolutely. you know, it rings false to the audience and that's in any performance. And the, the great performers that we, we all walk away from are, you know, it's because they are so connected to what they are doing. They're so it's seamlessly connected to, to the words and the and the moment and the, the time and everything and the guy in the third row that just spilled a drink, you know. I mean, you're hyper aware when when you're on stage. I I don't I don't see very well. I take my glasses off, but 
it's like ty tyresis, you know. I mean, actually, when you do that, you end you end up having other your more acute ability to hear and smell and feel vibrations and you know. So I've I've always um, loved like being that way. Now you got to choose choose your venue because I once tried to do my act and I did all the funny monologues I had. I was performing in Scotland at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and they had a showcase night at a, at a comedy club. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll bring three of my funniest monologues in and I'll, I'll do them for the comedy club. And I went on right after this guy that basically ripped off Robin Williams's whole routine, which is oh, hilarious. No. Um, and, you know, but it was Robin Williams. I wasn't going to say anything to the guy, you know, but um, the audience loved it. And it probably was because there were four or five pints into the night, you know. So I get on and I'm trying to do this monologue, albeit funny monologue. Uh, and, and they listened for about mm, 45 seconds or so. And then they started throwing shit. <laughs> At first, it was just wadded up packs of uh, cigarette packs or, or coasters or wet rags, you know, but then I kept going and they started lobbing in the bottles. <laughs> and at one, at one point, my sister, who was stage managing my solo show, stood up and, and, and she was in the balcony and she stood up and said, hey, that's my brother up there. Shut up. Let him do his act. And they paused. <laughs> They looked at her and they started throwing shit at her. <laughs> so, and meanwhile, I'm back, I'm back on stage. I'm back on stage, and I swear to God, a glancing blow right off the top of my head. Wow! About half. I would judge by my kinesthetics. It was about half full. Oh, oh so, man! But a glance, glancing, glancing, oh, okay. and 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 man, that like that lit the fire under me. I said, I got my fifteen effing minutes and i'm taking every last one and you know what i got about half of them on my side at that hey point. that's good that's that was amazing i thought half was good to reach into total chaos and pull out half that's that's yeah right so anyways know your audience you know and i mean on the other hand i've had you know i i i did my one-man show at ou where i graduated um uh, us talking across america a series of monologues based on interviews it's kind of like you mentioned before, the Anna Devere Smith kind of interview process that I learned a lot from, we were all, actually we were contemporaries, our contemporaries. But anyways, I, you know, the, like experience like that, then you come out and I, I uh, man, I do this monologue at the end of the show and it's about, a, it was at the, during the, it was an AIDS kind of monologue. And I, I reach up and I, and I walk into the audience and I grab someone's hand and I, I held her hand um, up against my forehead and said, what do you think, 103, 104? You know, don't worry, you can't get it that way. You know, and I go into this monologue and, and I'm about halfway through the monologue and the woman is crying. Tears oh. are pouring down her face. Oh no. And um, anyways, show, there was one of the second, it was the second to third to last monologue. Um, curtain, I run out, the place explodes. Uh, I come out for a, a curtain call. Um, I take a bow, I go back in uh the Cantner theater i go back in towards the locker room they're still clap like i did three three ovations that's excellent <laughs> yeah and then i found out afterwards that the woman i was talking to her brother had aids oh god 
And I had no oh. idea. I had no idea. I had no yeah. idea. So, you know, it, it's, it's weird how the energy manifests in, in, in the room, you know? I mean, was what? it just a sheer coincidence? What maybe maybe there was something else in in this in the <laughs> synergy of everything that was happening, you know. Yeah. There are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, good Horatio. <laughs> you know, I would I, I note the difference between because I tried stand-up a few times and it's hard. And the difference between reading a poem to an audience and doing stand-up versus acting in a play, because you, you've done all these things, so you can yeah. speak to it. Uh, it's in a play, you can get to pretend that the audience isn't there. You get to kind of block it out. And the more into the show you are, the less you notice the people watching. Right. But when you're doing stand-up and reading poetry, you're projecting directly at the audience. You're talking to them in most cases, unless it's more performative but right. performance based but it's it's more personal and it's more intense because you've got you what the audience doing matters way more yeah i think that's why the the slam caught on so much because it was that raw kind of monologue it was you know basically the poet is monologue it's, they're they're playing the character of themselves you know although sure. there were a lot of us that did monologue work that did other characters um, you know, famously, Patricia Smith did this poem called Skinhead in the voice of a skinhead. And she's a dark black, you know, beautiful woman from the south side of Chicago. Yeah. You know, so there, there was that that kind of stuff was going on. But you're right. It, it is. Uh, when I do my solo shows, I always have um, I, I like playing with the dynamics of it, of theater. And so there's moments where I'm just um, it's just I'm. I'm, I'm talking to someone off stage, you know, or I'm talking to someone in the audience, like I gave the example, and sometimes they're just pieces that are, um, you know, dramatic monologues, and they're just done as a, as a, as a, as a theater, look with the fourth wall, as the idea of the fourth wall, you know, or I create, like one character I did in the, in the dish show was um, a Vietnam vet, there were two Vietnam vets, and this one, um, this is actually based on a true story that I, I got from the newspaper, but it was a friend of mine that was in the shelter. And anyways, he goes down to the, in this newspaper story, a guy goes down to the wall and he, he's mourning his buddies and he sees his name on there. Oh no. You know? So, I mean, you know, talk about post-traumatic stress, right? So Absolutely. I, I had this guy, I was counseling at the shelter and he was the same thing. He was like a vet like that. Um, and it gone through similar experiences as this guy. And, and so I, I, I kind of combined those stories into this um, monologue called A Few Good Men. And I, I do the um, monologue to the, an imaginary wall, which is like the wall and I'm reading the name and then I, I turn to the audience, but I'm not turning to the audience, I'm turning to the, the guy who's interviewing me, right? Okay. So that they're eavesdropping on the, the I, I establish, and I've done this with several other, you, you know, you have to establish that, you're talking to a character that's out there, yeah. not the audience. Exactly. You know? Yeah, there's a difference. So, how you address so it. then they're kind of eavesdropping on it. You know, I did another character it was the same thing. He goes, you know, he was a survivalist, you know, and, and it's, it's hilarious kind of bit because I, I, you know, I, um, but at the end of it, I, uh, I point a gun at the audience and, and I say, and don't tell anybody where I live, you know. <laughs> 
So it's, it's like, I'm talking to somebody like, Oh, watch your head. I got a booby trap up there. You know, you yeah. know, see them hedgerows out there notice anything peculiar. That ain't well, apples. It's those movement sensitivities. Yeah. They're like you're, you and I are in on the joke. Now here right. are these interesting things that I'm going to point out for you. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways. And so that's um, one of the reasons I like uh, teaching performance teaching because the slam is just it kind of a one trick pony. It became it became kind of a form. And that, that happened pretty early on. Actually, the first few slams that, you know, and I was part of the slam from the beginning. I was uh, I was not the first one, but I was uh, uh, at every, uh, every other one for the first 10 years of it, I think, or I missed a couple of years in, in there, here and there. But, you know, and, and first people were doing haikus, you know. Uh, I remember famously, you know, this guy came up and said, came on stage he had made himself as big as he could and spread his arms and his legs open he said i used to be an epic but now i'm a haiku and he walked <laughs> off stage and he walked off stage and i thought it was brilliant you know um it didn't become like a like i'm gonna paint color to the edges of all the three minutes and 10 seconds that they give me until sure. much later and it was basically people studied what won and etc but previous to that people were doing performance art this one guy this guy from finland would come and compete and he had one poem where he just stood up there and went drip 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 <laughs> he did this for about a minute and a half or so <laughs> and people are booing you know they're like oh you know they're like and he's just up there drip drip and then about two-thirds of the way through he says, I was only following orders, sir. And he walks off stage. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's brilliant. Yeah, I never, I never forgot point. it, you know? So yeah. it was more of a performance art thing. And then it, then it became like, um, it came a, a identity politics kind of form, you know? Okay. And, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, people should, and we should encourage people to speak their truth from their perspective. Absolutely. You know, um, and it, it, do you know of any com competitions like that that are still ongoing in Cleveland? Yeah, they're, it's really moved, migrated into the youth. Uh, it's more of a, they do a youth slam now. Um, yeah, it really, the slam, um, as of, I think a couple of years ago, is no longer the National Poetry Slam. There were a series of, um, you know, kind of, clashes with the founders and people some of the old school people and and it just like i said it started to get you know it was never about using it as a stepping stone to a career it was, it was really and it, it became very much like that you know okay. it came came really more about winning whereas before it was about the winning is just a goof you know the competition <laughs> is just a goof it's really just a way for people to come and hear poetry. And that's what Mark Smith intended it to be. It's like people weren't going to poetry readings because the academic readings were so dreary and boring. So he said, I'm going to, I'm going to lighten it up. And, you know, and what, and the slam was only one, it is, because he's still doing it, is only one component of a night of poetry. They have a, a um, they have an opening, um, open mic, and then they do a slam and then they do a, a feature or, yeah. So it was, it was but one part of it, but it was like, it became the main part of it for a lot of people. Okay. And- um, what, about the, what about the haiku death match? <laughs> what about that? That's yeah, awesome. that, well, the, the haiku slam started pretty early on. In fact, and I did well nationally in, in the first uh, 
you know, I'm, we're going back to 94, 95, maybe. Okay. Uh, that far back. Yeah, anyways, I finished third a couple times nationally. Actually, I probably would have won this one year, but I ran out of haikus. <laughs> and I went to the bathroom and I just took some graffiti off. I just mismatched a bunch of graffiti off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back out and it, it didn't go over very well, yeah. you know, so it was, that's when I learned, like, you got to have a lot of haiku, you know, so yeah, the, the, the haiku here in Cleveland was an offshoot of that, um, but they aptly, uh, to even garner more attention, they aptly called it the, the haiku death match, and I always add, add that if you lose, you have to commit Sudoku. <laughs> so beautiful <laughs> uh, i've done well at that too um and it's it's a great event uh it's a great way to bring um haiku to a bigger audience and so one of the things i wanted to do as heights poet laureate was do ginkgos or haiku hikes and i think actually in the spring here we're going to be able to do that because we'll be able to be outside and be socially distanced and then and do, then do have that eventually lead into the um haiku deathmatch which i'll be emceeing as part of my duties as a poet laureate gotcha well excellent i'll have to look out for that yeah um well before we go i wanted to see if you'd be up for reading a poem yeah we missed that at the beginning we got <laughs> we did that's okay talking. <laughs> that's okay i very much enjoyed our conversation well i was gonna i was gonna do this to kind of lead things off because it's um Yeah, yeah, I'll still do it. So um, this is a, uh, I'll give you people a little background because it's a fascinating story in a way. I've had guns pulled on me in two places uh, in this world. Well, I three places. I got mugged with a gun one, twice, with, twice, two times with guns. Uh, but the only time I've had military people point guns at me was um, in Ireland uh, where I was hitchhiking and a guy picked me up and we drove into this town and there was a British paratrooper roadblock and uh, there'd been a bombing. You could see the fire, the, the smoke rising out of the village. And I got out of the car and um, the guy immediately said, I don't know this guy. He's, he's, I just picked him up hitchhiking. <laughs> so I was like, Oh shit. So stupid American that I am. I had my passport. I was wearing a tweed jacket and I had my passport in my breast pocket. And I went with my right hand to get my passport out and they leveled their, you know, rifles at me immediately. And I said, I just get my passport. The second time it happened was uh, in LA during the LA riots. I was working for um, Poetry Alive and we were actually doing a, uh, when the verdict was handed down, we were doing uh, kids shows, me and my partner, Poetry Alive in those days, when still to this day, always sends out multicultural teams. So, um, I was doing with my partner, uh, Logie Meacham, I was doing a program and uh, in Simi Valley, which is where all the cops lived, that mm. were, uh, that's where uh, the guy who, who uh, you know, the cops, that's where they lived is up there. And that's okay. where the verdict was handed down. So the riot um, subsequently happened after they, you know, <laughs> found the guy not guilty. So the riot happens and I'm, I went to, um, my friend Patricia Smith, who I referenced earlier, was covering the story for the Boston Globe. She was a reporter. So we're walking the streets of LA. We, she was staying in a hotel right above the um, police station, downtown police, Los Angeles LAPD station. Okay. So um, 
we're walking around because she's covering the story and I'm like, I'm a poet. So I want to, you know, I want to get an eyeful of this because it's my job as a poet to report this in a poetic way. So um, sure enough, we came around the corner and National Guard was marching down the other way and they leveled their guns up and they, and they said, you got to clear that you have to go seek shelter right now. So we ended up, I ended up staying the night um, with her in the hotel above the uh, LA police station and I, where I started writing this poem, which I later used um, when we won the Poetry Slam Championship. This was the poem that I, um, I had a rough draft of it and I finished it up uh, at, at the hotel the night before we went to the finals and we did this as a group piece. Oh, now, fast forward, it's a poem about racism in this country. That's the big long intro to this, but fast forward, um, everything that happened this summer uh, is the same thing happening all over again. Yeah. So uh, I wrote this poem and I shall say it for you all now. It's called, Oh Say Can You See? Oh say can you see this country? free of bigotry, incivility, hostility, from sea to shining TD. The tribes are picking up sides from Ferguson to Charlotte, from Minneapolis to Cleveland, and there's nowhere left to hide for the children of the dream walking hand in hand down that black and white wound running across this land. What's wrong with this picture? Can you find the human being beaten on this screen, being beaten on that screen? He deserved it. Payback happens. What goes around comes around, said the eye for an eye, blind men. But the rioting is on the wall. Mr. President, you have a call on the white courtesy phone. It's the blanks fault. The blanks started it. You know how they are. They don't really belong here. So we sell ourselves on talk shows like bugs shaken in a jar and the finger of blame points around in an angry trigger circle because we're all living in the same hood now, buying into Babylonian hype. Mad Ave went to bed with Hollywood, raised a little family of stereotypes. Say, can you see someone looks just like me peering out from the leaves of our family tree rooted in Mother Africa. We are the children of the dream. Wandered our separate ways a long time gone, gathered together here again today. Remember, can we call ourselves brothers, sisters? What color was the hand raised against Abel after it fell? How will we ever wipe the slate clean when the powers that be sell us whitewash, sell us blackball, so we can paint ourselves into our own corners, the mirrors of our monsters? Can you see the eyes of a, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father behind the masks of your worst nightmares? Oh, say can you see through the lies that we are not us? that we are us versus us. And where is justice? Or is it just us? We are the children of the dream wandering the desert of America through the smoke screen from the fire next time, come home.
walking hand in hand down that black and white wound running across this land, healed over with each step together and together again. Oh, say can you see the person walking next to you now? Wow, that's very powerful. So anyways, it's unfortunately, um, I thought we were done with all that, but apparently not. <laughs> no, I think that's a long running battle that's not gonna be solved soon. Well, you know, every it's maybe it's two steps up, one step back. I mean, I you look at the Boers in South Africa and they got really desperate and devious as, as the as the end was nearing. And uh, it's obviously what's happening in this country. Yeah. You know, so but the problem is we're you know. We're moving on without you. <laughs> We're moving on without you. You know, it's the change is inevitable. Yeah. yeah. So I, I encourage them to come along. There's there there it's it's um one big happy family, one big happy dysfunctional family, but <laughs> nonetheless, one big happy family. And Daily anybody Thanksgiving. anybody that thinks that we're not all in this together, uh I don't have the time or patience for them anymore. That's right. Amen. All right. <laughs> All right. This has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA's blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Ray McNeese, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. I really appreciate it. Jeremy, I, I warned you, if you get me started talking, I'll tell you everything I know. Please, please do. That would be fantastic. And make up the rest. <laughs> well, thanks again, and uh, see you down the road. Yes, sir. Bye.